We want to continue to uh, expand tonight in a little more detail the teaching that Kamala has been mentioning on uh, relative and absolute truth, two different ways of relating to reality. And again, if this is something that you can't relate to directly in your own practice or your own experience yet, uh, that's fine. You know, you can just file this one away for later to return to. Uh, Fortunately, we just talk about the same things over and over again at these retreats, so if you don't get it the first time, you'll get it the next time. And very often it happens that we, you know, we do hear these teachings when we're ready to. So we may hear the same teaching over and over multiple times, and then when the time is right, it kind of clicks. So it's, it's fine if there's just maybe one or two things you know, as we've been saying from a Dharma talk that you feel like are really relevant or that apply to where you're at in your practice right now. And the rest, you know, you can just kind of take it in and and let it filter through. Around the second century AD, there was a Buddhist monk called Nagarjuna. Some of you may be familiar with his writings. He wrote a very influential early Buddhist text called the Fundamental Verses of the Middle Way, which is a great name. And this is a verse from that text. He said, The Dharma taught by the Buddhas relies on two truths, ambiguous truths of the world and truths of sublime meaning. Those who do not understand the difference between these two truths cannot understand the profound reality of the Buddha's teaching. So this is a pithy little verse pointing again to this idea that there are two levels or two layers of truth that are operative in the world. What Nagarjuna calls the ambiguous truths of the world and then these sublime truths, truths of sublime meaning. So this teaching is really fundamental to what we're doing here. These two levels of truth are often referred to as relative and absolute truth, relative and absolute reality. And this is an idea that's found in in some form, in some uh, way, in every Buddhist school, which is saying something, because there's quite a variety, as you may know, there's quite a, a diversity of different practices, different teachers, different teaching styles within the various schools of, of Buddhism that have evolved in different parts of the world at different times. But this, this idea, this is really a core idea that's found in some way, shape, or, or form in all of the lineages. So it's this idea that as human beings, we're multidimensional. Our lives are multidimensional, multifaceted, that they play out on different levels of reality. And one way of looking at what we're doing here is that we're learning to recognize those different levels learning to identify them, to understand them, and to be able to tune into them, into both of those levels, in our own experience. So not just as a philosophical exercise that, oh, yeah, that kind of makes sense to me, but to really feel what it's like to be in the one world, what it's like to be in the other world. So I'll start by talking a little bit about how we normally see things, what Nagarjuna called the ambiguous truths of the world. This mode of seeing is called panyati in Pali, panyati. And this is another one of those Pali terms that's difficult to translate. Um, So sometimes it's called relative reality, 
in the sense that everything within that level of reality is, is relative to everything else. There's no fixed center to it. Uh, sometimes it's called conventional reality in the sense that it's our everyday reality, our ordinary reality. Sometimes it's called consensual reality, which is a little interesting. It's, so that term points to the idea that it's the reality that we all agree to agree on. <laughs> it's the reality that we, where we find our common ground and we interact with each other. So these are all names for this one level of reality. The term that I find most helpful in thinking about it these days, uh, though, is conceptual reality, because that term really points to what this, this level of seeing things is made up of, which is concepts, conceptual reality. So it's what we might call in modern terms our conceptual model of the world. And it includes all of our ideas about what things are and what they do and how they're related. And really we construct the whole of this level of reality, what we're used to thinking of as the world, out of ideas. So for example, just sitting here right now, what's going on? We all have a conceptual framework for that, you know, so we know who we are, you know, we know who the other people are, maybe not their names, but we have concepts for them, you know, we know that it's, it's the evening, that it's May 2017, and we're here at Spirit Rock, and we're in the meditation hall, and we're on an intensive meditation retreat on the planet Earth, you know, all of this kind of uh, understanding, conceptual understanding, which is really vast. You know, if we really list it out, what are all the ideas we have just in this moment about what's happening right now? It's huge. It's this huge network, this huge conglomeration of ideas and concepts. And that vast array of concepts is active in our minds pretty much all the time, unless something happens to to shift that, unless something happens to shift us out of that way of relating. So this whole conceptual framework that we operate within is what Nagarjuna called the ambiguous truths of the world, which is why it is sometimes called relative reality. And we come up against this all the time as we move through life, that concepts are fluid, that they are relative. How they form and change depends on all sorts of factors. So since we each have a unique mind and a unique body and a unique personal history, we all end up with a unique conceptual framework a unique relative reality. And for the most part, you know, for most of us, our our individual frameworks overlap enough that we can uh, work together well enough to get by, right? But we see all the time, and especially these days, how we run into problems due to the diversity of our conceptual frameworks, due to the ways in which they don't overlap and they don't agree. So people have different ideas and opinions, And everyone really has their own unique view or interpretation of what's going on at any given time. Even those people that we have very similar views and opinions with, you know, say close friends that we're really in a lot of alignment in how we see things, we're not exactly in alignment. You know, there will be discrepancies. There will be some areas where we don't see things the same way. So this is why if you take a group of people who are all experiencing the same event, the same basic experience, each one will have a slightly different idea about what's happening. 
So even just like right now, you know, we probably have a whole variety of ideas and thoughts and feelings, beliefs about what's happening right now. You know, some of you may be feeling like this is a wonderful experience. Some of you may be feeling like this is an awful experience. Some of you may be spacing out and thinking it's a totally boring experience. You know, if we went around, we could find, probably find all sorts of ideas about what's going on right now. So as Nagarjuna says, it's, it's all ambiguous. It's all relative. It's all subjective. What's true basically depends on who you ask. And we see that even our own ideas and opinions change over time, right? So we pick up new ideas, we discard old ones. Some ideas remain very fixed in our lives. Others can shift very quickly. We might uh, reflect on uh, ideas, understandings of the world that we had <coughs> ten, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. For those of us that are a little bit older, we might think about the ideas of the world that we had when we were teenagers. <laughs> and how those shift and change. So even our own personal conceptual framework is not a given. It's very fluid. It's very changeable. These discrepancies are very obvious in the world today and in conflicts over who has the right view, who has the wrong view, who has the right understanding of different problems, different solutions. You know, we really don't have to look too far <laughs> these days to find examples of this. You know, the, the Republicans versus the Democrats, or, you know, what have you, different conflicts within different countries, conflicts between countries. You know, in, in these kinds of conflicts, each of the groups involved, you know, actually each individual in each of the groups involved, uh, really feels like they have the right view, the correct understanding of the situation or the conflict. If we get into a conversation with someone with opposing views, then we might have this feeling like, how can they possibly see things that way? You know, It's just so obvious to us that our conceptual framework, our view of things is the right one. And this is because these are ambiguous truths. These are understandings that are uh, relative, they're subjective. So really we could say that, that no one has <laughs> the right view of how things are. Not, not any of us, not one of us. Not in any kind of absolute sense, because these are all conceptual truths, relative truths. They're inherently subjective. They're inherently ambiguous. They're inherently diverse. And it becomes you know, potentially or actually very harmful when we believe that it's otherwise, when we really feel like we have the right view in some kind of absolute sense. The classic metaphor for this level of conceptual reality is that it's said to be like a mirage or like a rainbow. These are the examples that we find in the ancient texts. So conditions come together, like light and moisture, heat, uh, sand, a particular viewing angle, and a rainbow appears or a mirage appears. When those conditions change, then that image also changes or disappears. <laughs> And it's the same with all of the conceptual world's various views and opinions. This is a really famous uh, poem from the second century text, the Samadhi Raja Sutra. Know all things to be like this, a mirage, a shape in the clouds, a dream, an apparition, without essence, but with qualities that can be seen. 
know all things to be like this, as the moon in a bright sky, reflected in some clear lake, though to that lake the moon has never moved. Know all things to be like this, as an echo that reverberates from music, other sounds, or weeping, yet in that echo is no melody. Know all things to be like this, as a magician conjures illusions, nothing is as it appears. So last night, Kamala mentioned uh, the story of the Buddha's advice to the Kalama people who he visited. And I want to revisit that teaching again tonight because it makes a number of interesting points. In some ways, the Buddha's time was a lot like ours today, actually, even though it was some 25, 2600 years ago. So it was a time when there were a lot of changes going on in the traditional social structures uh, in the traditional systems of government, the, the world and human society were evolving in a more modern direction. Um, so in many ways, it was a time of unrest and uneasiness. There was a lot of conflict between warring states, um, but also it was a time of growing prosperity as agricultural technology made advances. So there was a lot going on, and people were just generally uneasy, and there was a lot of uh, questioning deeply in, in many places in the world of what life was really a- about this time that we call the Axial Age, when so many great uh, philosophers emerged. And it's said that the, the Kalama people were um, relatively prosperous. It's thought that the Kalama uh, kingdom was around the area of modern-day New Delhi. So there was a nice climate. It was really good for agriculture. There are a lot of natural resources um, people were enjoying a high standard of living, uh, not you know a lot like the Bay Area here, actually, <laughs> you know, kind of a really nice place to live with a lot um, of prosperity. And as tends to happen, there was also no short of no shortage of spiritual teachers around, <laughs> looking to find followers and gain support. We know how that goes. So when the Buddha arrived in in the capital of the Kalama, the people that saw him were you know, much like people anywhere that he went, very inspired by his bearing, by his his nobility, his radiance. Um, But they were skeptical because of the experiences they'd been having with other uh, spiritual teachers. So this group of people came up to him and and said to him, you know, they expressed their doubts that uh, we've had many spiritual teachers visit our town and each one expounds their teaching in a very believable, you know, very convincing way. And they also completely deny and negate the teachings of all the other teachers. So we don't know who to believe. And the Buddha's response was very interesting. So he didn't just say, well, you know, look at me, I'm the Buddha. You know, of course you should believe me. You know, isn't it obvious? He didn't say that. Instead, he he gave this great teaching where he pointed to the inherently unreliable nature, the ambiguous nature of conceptual reality the limitations of understanding things through ideas and concepts. So there's this list of of, uh, reasons he said are not adequate for accepting a certain philosophy or a certain spiritual teaching. These These are the reasons that don't make the cut. So one of them is because a teaching is repeatedly recited. So we may hear something over and over again in the family we live in, the community we live in, the peer group that we move in, the society that we live in. 
that's not an adequate reason to accept it. He also said that we shouldn't accept a spiritual teaching because it is written down in scriptures. (laughs) An interesting one. So there's, you know, a whole variety of holy books uh, in many different spiritual traditions, including this one. We're always talking about the Pali Canon. We've got our scriptures also. Um, But the Buddha said that just because something's been written down in a holy book, that's not good enough reason to accept it. Also, if it's because it's been handed down from teacher to disciple. So again, we, we may have um, you know, very long-standing traditions in human culture, you know, things that have been passed down from one generation to the next, certain beliefs, certain practices, just because people have been doing things for a long time, potentially a very long time. He said that's not good enough reason to believe them. Also, uh, he said it's not enough reason to accept something because everybody around you believes it. (laughs) We know how that one goes. It doesn't need a lot of explanation. Just because our peer group is jumping off the bridge, not a reason to jump off the bridge. Also, he said uh, we shouldn't expect to accept a spiritual teaching because it has metaphysical qualities. So when, if we put that into modern language, we might say uh, it's not, a good, not good enough that a particular philosophy or teaching is kind of sexy, you know, that it's kind of appealing, it seems cool or neat, or you know, somehow appeals to our aesthetics. We shouldn't accept a teaching because it agrees with what we believe anyway. This is an interesting one in the modern day and age, you know, that where we have this phenomenon that you can go online and find a million people that basically agree with you and have things to say about it. And it's so easy to jump in and say, yeah, you know, because they agree with me anyway. Also not a reason to accept a teaching because it seems reasonable, because you can rationalize it or justify it. So if, even if an idea or a teaching, a spiritual practice appears, appeals to our logic, to our sense of reason, that's not adequate. He said, don't believe a teaching because it's some viewpoint or it has some viewpoint that you need to defend. So it can be the case that we uh, kind of hang on to ideas, to views, to, to uh, ideas about the world because to let go of them could be a real threat to us. You know, it might put us um, out of good favor with our family or our friends or our community. It might threaten our own sense of ourself and our place in the world. So there's some ideas that we feel like we need to embrace in order to feel secure in the world. But the Buddha said that's not good enough. He said, don't believe an idea because the teacher is a reputable person. (laughs) So just because the Dalai Lama said it. we can't accept it on that basis, or we shouldn't. That shouldn't be good enough. We shouldn't just accept ideas with blind faith because someone who seems really trustworthy is putting it out there. And finally, he said, don't accept any spiritual teaching because the teacher says it's so. So don't believe us either. (laughs) We sit up here, we say all sorts of things. You know, don't swallow it. Don't believe it just because we say it. So one way of looking at this teaching is that it's an encouragement to see for ourselves, to really see in our own experience what's true and what isn't, and what's useful and what isn't, and what leads to less less suffering and what doesn't. That we really shouldn't take anyone else's word for it. That only uh, serves us to a limited end. 
But if we think about it, about all these things that the Buddha said not to uh, plant our understanding, not to plant our wisdom on, he's going really even further than that. So he's not only saying that we shouldn't rely on other people's ideas, he's also saying we shouldn't rely on our own ideas. (laughs) So those views and opinions that we've arrived at through reason or logic or because they're appealing to us in some way, So not just swallowing someone else's version of the truth, things we hear from others, um, but also not swallowing our own conceptual uh, version of the truth, things that we arrive at through logic. So this is really a very radical proposition. This is an entirely different uh, approach to gaining wisdom, to understanding the world than than is found in pretty much any other spiritual tradition. The idea that we need to look somewhere else entirely other than conceptual reality in order to gain true understanding, in order to really gain wisdom that is transformative, that's useful in this quest for less suffering and greater happiness. This talk tonight was inspired by uh, a chapter by, from a book by Mahasi Sayadaw called The Manual of Insight, which uh, Stephen Kamala's Dharma organization, uh, Vipassana Metta Foundation, uh, spent many, many years translating into English and has just recently come to fruition and been published, uh, which is very gratifying. But early on in that project, I had a chance to read through some early English uh, translations of, of the book, and there's a chapter in it that deals with just this topic of, of conceptual and, rel- and uh, absolute reality, relative and absolute reality, which was the inspiration for this talk. So in that book, there's a whole section where uh, Say- Mahasi Sayadaw, in his usual manner, uh, expands out in great detail, <laughs> in great length, uh, all of these sources of unreliable wisdom that I just explained in brief. He goes into even more excruciating detail, making it really, really clear what, what he's talking about, what the Buddha was talking about. And then after he's uh, made that long exposition, then he just refers to all of that as hearsay, etc. <laughs> now it's like, because he can't, can't list out that long list of unreliable sources every single time he wants to mention them. So he puts this little tag on it, hearsay, etc. It's like hearsay and every other unreliable source of knowledge that we can possibly have. And reading this really made me reflect, you know, years ago for the first time, just how much of our worldview really does come from these conceptual sources. So much about, uh, so much of our understanding about ourselves and about the world is really secondhand, or just conceptual. It's mind-boggling to think just about our childhoods and about all of the ideas about ourselves that we absorbed from our caregivers and from the people around us, from our peers, from our communities, from the media. We get to see here in retreat at some point, and many of you are uh, reporting this when we talk to you, you know, just how entrenched some of these ideas are that we've absorbed from people around us, from sources around us. Ideas about, you know, our intelligence, our attractiveness, our popularity, you know, our, our goodness, our worth. And yet, if we reflect a little bit, we can get some sense that these were just other people's views and opinions about us. Their own relative subjective view of us based on all of their conditioning and their particular conceptual framework and their history and their worldview. 
But if we don't recognize this, then we hang on to those ideas and we continue to believe them. We continue to relate to those ideas as if they really were true in some absolute way, some objective way. And it becomes clear as we look how harmful this can be and how much suffering it can cause us. A lot of you are seeing that. I can see among my own friends, uh, the people that I know, I have uh, one very dear friend who early on in his life, this was some decades ago, was labeled as learning disabled because he had certain difficulties in performing within the school system, the way that it was structured then, uh, achieving, proving himself uh, with the tasks that he was given in school. And he really internalized this label of being somehow disabled, being somehow deficient, of not having what it takes to succeed. And so now, even as an adult, despite you know, really having tremendous gifts, you know, he's incredibly creative, he's wonderful with people, he's got really all sorts of talents and wonderful qualities, uh, still he goes through life expecting to fail, you know, feeling still now as an adult, like he's not as good as others that he is deficient in some way. This is such a common scenario. There's really no objective reality to the view that he is inferior or deficient, but he's internalized it so deeply that it's a real fetter, it's a real impediment, it's a real source of suffering in his life. And we could all come up with examples like this about ourselves or about other people we know who are limited by early messages that they absorb and that they cling to. And we can see here how this plays out in our own hearts and minds, that we absorb these messages early on and then they continue to influence and shape our lives. Every single idea we have about ourselves and the world is acquired in one of these two ways illustrated in the teaching to the Kalamas. So either we adopt other people's ideas, taking on what we, what we might call externally imposed conceptual truths, or we reason things out for ourselves and we create internally generated conceptual truths. And so much of our understanding is gained in this way that we really take it completely for granted. We might consider the example of our, our nationality, whatever that might be. You know, how long have we known that we were an American? How did we first become aware of it? And when? Can we even remember? Who were the people or what were the experiences that convinced us of our nationality? If no one had ever told us that we were American or German or Russian or or Canadian, would we know? (laughs) Would there be any way we could know? Is there any experience in the body or the mind that corresponds to Americanness or Germanness or Russianness or Canadianness? You know, is there a distinct American breath or a distinct German breath? <laughs> you know. So if we look, we see that there's really nothing in our actual experience that uh, communicates even these very basic aspects of our identity that we take for granted. These are things that we can only know or believe about ourselves through ideas and concepts, through thinking about them and coming to conclusions. 
So I want to talk a little bit now about uh, this idea that can sound a little intimidating that we call absolute reality, the other side of the coin, the other truth. So what is that? The Pali word for it is paramata, paramata, which I'm told can be translated literally as true truth. So it's the the really true truth. (laughs) It's the truth that's really true, or however you want to say that. The English term that I like for, for this one is empirical reality, because again, this points to how we experience it. The term empirical in science means, means that something can be directly observed or measured, that it's something that instruments can pick up and detect. So by saying that absolute reality is empirical, it means that we can directly observe it through our senses. It's what our instruments can pick up through the senses of this human organism. So these are the realities that we can know for sure and for ourselves without resorting to uh, hearsay, etc. They're the things that we can be completely confident about because we've seen them. We've known them directly for ourselves. And as it turns out, this is actually a relatively limited set of things. (laughs) There's not that much that falls in this category. So we have you know, the six senses is one way of thinking about this. So there's our physical experience, uh, all of the experience that comes in through our nervous systems and our sense organs, all of the various sensations that we feel in our bodies, both internally and externally. And then there's uh, seeing, hearing, tasting, and smelling. And that's really all that ever happens in our physical experience if we pay attention. It's just that, some combination of those experiences over and over and over again. It's pretty straightforward. So that's where we usually start in our meditation because this is the easiest entry point for most of us into absolute reality. And then there's our mental experience, which includes everything that we can experience with our minds, which is also considered to be a sense a sense door, a sensory organ in the Buddhist uh, Abhidhamma, the Buddhist psychology. So we talk about six senses. So there's everything we can experience uh, in the mind in the present moment, which is everything that, which is diff- very different from what we can know in the present moment uh, conceptually. So the content or the meaning of our mental activity is in the realm of conceptual reality, what all of those thoughts are saying, the story that they're telling. That's in the realm of conceptual reality. But the absolute reality of the mind is just the direct experience of our mental activity itself, what it feels like to think, what it feels like to remember, what the experience of our emotions actually is, rather than the story that they're telling us. So there are these two ways of relating to our mental activity, the way of relative reality, where we pay attention to the content, to the story of our ideas and concepts, and see everything from within that uh, narrative point of view of those concepts. So there's a level of relating through conceptual reality where we get drawn into the story of our thoughts or we hop on the train. And there's the way of absolute reality where we're aware of the fact and direct experience of thinking itself, not getting drawn into the story, not hopping on the train. 
but instead knowing what that mental activity actually feels like in the mind. An analogy for this is that it's like the difference between being on a raft, floating down a river with a lot of rapids, going whitewater rafting, and being on the the bank of the river, being on the side and watching that raft go by. The same thing is happening, but the point of view is different. So when we're caught up in our thoughts, then, you know, we're out there riding the rapids. (laughs) You know, we're on that raft. And we're carried wherever the river takes us. And if it's a choppy ride, then all we can do is hang on and hope for the best. But if we're sitting on the bank of the river, observing our thoughts from the perspective of absolute reality, then we can just watch the raft go by, just observe. And then the next one, and then another one, seeing them all drift by. (coughs) We can rest in a place of stillness, on firm ground, as that parade of, of thoughts drifts by. And this level of absolute reality is is fundamentally different from conceptual reality. It's completely unrelated to concepts. It's outside of concepts. And of course we can and we do use concepts to describe it. Uh, Like in this talk right now and all of the instructions that we give, you know, this information is being delivered via conceptual reality. And we're taking it in via conceptual reality, our consensual reality. Same thing when we use the, the noting or the labeling techniques. You know, those happen within the realm of conceptual reality as well. So we use words and concepts to point our awareness towards absolute reality, but the actual experience of it is non-conceptual or preconceptual. It's just that direct knowing of what is happening without the interpreting of it. A good example of this is trying to describe in words the flavor of a food. So like chocolate, which is not universally appreciated like it is here. Uh, maybe those brownies that we had yesterday. So, you know, say you're dropped off in some obscure part of the world where they don't either have access to or appreciate chocolate. Hard to imagine, but it may be true. <laughs> you know, how would you describe the flavor of chocolate to somebody there? You know, it's sweet, it's rich chocolatey, you know, there's only, there's only so much you can say about it. If you're, if you're a real gourmand, maybe some of you are here in the Bay Area, you might be able to come up with a few more adjectives. Um, but is it really possible to convey that flavor through a conceptual description? You can't. The only way to know the flavor is to actually taste it for yourself. We had an experience of this some years ago when a, a friend of ours from uh, Sri Lanka, Damaruan, who's now uh, a monk and a teacher in Sri Lanka, he was visiting uh, the Insight Meditation Society, the sister center to, to this retreat center, in, which is in rural Massachusetts. And uh, he was coming to the end of his visit and asked what a good thing would be to take back for his friends and family as little souvenirs you know, from central Massachusetts, what was a, a really distinctive product of that region. So we thought a little bit and came to us pretty quickly. Well, maple syrup. You know, every, every other person in this area taps their trees and is, is making maple syrup or, or sending it off someplace to be made. And as it turns out, there's a, one of the, the center's neighbors, so the house just down the street has a little home maple syrup brewing operation. They tap their trees and they um, boil the syrup right there in their, um, on their property. 
So we walked down the street and uh, knocked on the door, and the woman there answered, and we told her what we wanted. And as it turned out, her father was this really sweet old, you know, New England uh, native was out back in the, the sugar shack right at that moment, boiling up some syrup. So we said, great. And she took us out back. And, you know, we asked him, you know, could, could we get a bunch of little small bottles of syrup for him to take home? And as we were talking, it came out that uh, Damaruan had never tasted maple syrup before. So he didn't actually know what it was. So we tried to describe, well, it's, you know, it's sweet. And he asked, well, is it kind of like honey? And he's like, yes, it's kind of like honey, but not exactly. So the woman, uh, you know, she just took a, took a little cup that she had there and, you know, dipped a little bit of the fresh maple syrup just right up, you know, fresh out of the pot, you know, and gave it to him. And he, he was a little skeptical. He, like, sniffed it a little bit first <laughs> and then put it up to his mouth and took a little sip. And his face lit up like a Christmas tree. <laughs> you, know, it was just, you could see the delight spreading across his face. Um, but it was one of those moments where you could really see the aha moment. <laughs> it's like, okay, now he knows what maple syrup is. And he bought a bunch of bottles and took them back with him. <laughs> so this kind of example of, of knowing the flavor of a food is fairly straightforward. It's not too hard for us to get that. But the same principle really applies to all of absolute reality. So what does heat really feel like? Does it feel like that word heat? Is that an actual description of that experience? No, it has its own unique taste. It has its own unique flavor, just like maple syrup, which we can only know by feeling it directly, by actually tasting it in the moment that it's happening. And it's the same with everything. What does joy really feel like? What does sorrow really feel like? We have to actually feel them in the moment to really know, apart from those concepts, those ideas that we have of what they are. And those direct experiences, they're, they're related to the concepts of them. You know, those, the concepts and the experiences are connected, but they're really something entirely different from the concepts. And yet, most of us... Uh, are so used to relating to our life through the medium of concepts, which just happens naturally as we develop as human beings, that we often don't realize that we aren't really feeling some aspect of an experience, or aren't perhaps even really feeling it at all. We can take it for granted that, oh, of course I know what heat feels like. Of course I know what joy feels like. Of course I know what sorrow feels like. Uh, when that's not actually the case. That's an assumption. I came up against this early in my practice on my first long retreat, on my first three-month retreat that I sat, where I got a bit into retreat, and my mind started going through a personal history review. Maybe some of you are enjoying this right now, where you kind of go back and revisit unskillful things that you've done in the past or painful things that you've lived through. This is a really kind of universal, common experience. Um, So I had a lot of painful memories come up, and... I was trying to be diligent and, uh, you know, label the emotions as the instructions were, same as we give here. But I could never seem to quite figure out what I was actually feeling. You know, I had ideas based on the content of those memories of what I ought to be feeling, what I should be feeling. So, like, if I had been watching my memories on a TV show or reading them in a book, you know, I would have ideas about, oh, well, this character in this situation should be feeling angry or this character in this situation should be feeling grief. I kind of was relating on that level, that I had ideas about what kinds of feelings those memories ought to bring up, 
what would be appropriate feelings for the, to go with those stories. But somehow I never felt quite confident in the labels that I would put on the emotions. You know, I, I would look at the story and say, oh, that ought to be a sad one. And so I'd label sadness <laughs> based on the story. But it didn't feel quite right. It didn't seem like I was really getting it. So I kept going into my uh, interviews with my teachers and complaining that I didn't know what I was feeling. <laughs> it was really bugging me. I, I felt really frustrated. I was, you know, I was like, what's going on? Why can't I tell what I'm feeling? It really surprised me because I, didn't, I hadn't thought of myself as being particularly emotionally disconnected. I hadn't thought of myself as a particularly repressed person <laughs> or anything like that. And yet, you know, here I was and I couldn't tell what I was feeling. I'd go in and report this, and the teachers would say, well, just know it how you know it. (laughs) Same thing we say here. Um, But I was really frustrated until at some point I just gave up (laughs) trying to figure it out, which is so often in the practice was a big turning point. So it was at that point when I gave up on trying to put the concept to it, trying to actually put the label to it, to, to something that wasn't clear, when I started trying to make it clearer than it was, when I gave up on that whole project, was, was when I started to actually be able to feel what I was feeling. To make that shift to the absolute reality, to the empirical reality, the reality that my senses were actually picking up on. To connect with all of the sensations in my body, and kind of the changing texture of the mind, the sense of, of pleasant and unpleasant, uh, as various thoughts and memories move through. And it was, it was still mostly unpleasant stuff. <laughs> it wasn't that that changed. But at the same time, there was, started to be this experience of being just more awake, more fully in my experience, actually living the reality of my emotional life in a way that I realized I, I hadn't in years, probably since childhood. In, that I had been living in a way that, had, that my emotional life had been hidden by all of my ideas and concepts about what I was feeling. And at that point, I didn't really care anymore what the label was or what the reason was for my feeling because the reality of the experience in the present moment was far greater than that. It was far deeper than that. It was far truer than that. It was paramata, the true truth. <coughs> And ironically, it was at that point that I did finally begin to be able to, to put some labels to my emotions, if I wanted to, if I chose to, because I was actually feeling them. <laughs> I had stopped putting the cart before the horse, so I'd been you know, trying to put the label and then feel the emotion, whereas at this point I was able to feel the emotion, and then out of that feeling, put the label if I wanted to. So one way of thinking about what we're doing here is we're learning to make this shift in perception from relative reality to absolute reality, from our concepts and ideas about experience to connecting with our actual experience directly. And everything that we do here is really in the service of that endeavor. The whole structure of the retreat is set up so that uh, we don't have to spend any more time than necessary in conceptual reality. This is, this is how things are organized here. This is why we do things in this kind of crazy way. So, thing, so we come to this secluded place where uh, we don't have, hopefully, any contact with media. We can kind of drop that whole part of conceptual reality. We leave our personal responsibilities behind so we can uh, let go of thoughts about our to-do lists, our projects. 
things are arranged so that we don't have to interact with ver- with each other very much, so that we can drop ideas about relationships, being liked, not liked, doing the right thing. We only have to do a minimum of work so that we can drop ideas about you know, accomplishing things, getting things done. Uh, and we don't read and write, which by their very nature are part and parcel of conceptual reality. So everything's been optimized so that we don't need to engage with concepts any more than is absolutely necessary. And the instructions are all designed to keep pointing us back towards absolute reality, back to that awareness of our actual experience. Can we feel a breath as if we were taking our very first breath or our very last? As if we had no preconceptions, no ideas, no expectations about it? Can we taste sleepiness as if it were a fine wine that we've never tasted before, discovering its complex and unique flavors? It's really that simple. So things can seem complex at times. It can seem like there's so much going on in the body and there's so much going on in the mind and there's so much that we could be aware of in any moment, especially as we open out to a more open awareness, a more choiceless awareness. It can be, feel a little overwhelming. But it's really just about being aware of something that is paramata, something that's really true, something that's true truth, something that we can directly know in the moment with our senses. The Dharma is really not too particular about what we settle on. So maybe something very subtle, very sublime, and maybe something very obvious, very coarse, uh, just so long as it's something that we directly know right now. So if we follow the instructions as best we can, then inevitably we will begin to connect more and more with absolute reality. And you guys are already so much more sensitive to your direct experience now than you were when you arrived, even if it may not feel like it. That's true. There's a very strongly conditioned tendency to relate to experience through concepts. So it's not something that we um, have to choose to do. Mostly it's something that we don't choose to do. It just happens automatically. Our teacher, Joseph Goldstein, um, you know, famously gives the example for this of, of looking up into the sky and seeing the Big Dipper. You know, so I'm not sure if it's visible right now in the sky, but it, you, know, you might notice sometime looking up at the sky, there's that particular arrangement of stars, and like, it's like immediately that concept is there you know, on top of it. It's, it's like impossible to look at that arrangement of stars and not have that concept of uh, Big Dipper overlaid on it, if that's how we've been conditioned, if that's how we've been taught. It's really interesting. Making that shift in the mind between the different modes of seeing things, between seeing just the absolute truth of what's happening versus seeing uh, the relative truth of our conceptual overlay, uh, I think of it a little bit like tuning the knob on an old-fashioned radio if you had experience with one of those or, or happen to still have one of those. My husband has one, so I get to do, do this sometimes. But it's, it's, it's a little tricky, you know, so you have to get the, the knob just in the right spot, you know, to pick up a station. And then you kind of move through, you know, this painful area where there's a lot of crosstalk and gobbledygook until you get to the next station, and that one really comes in clear. So it's the same, it can be the same in our practice. There can be these, these in-between spaces where we're not quite fully tuned into absolute reality and we're not quite 
you know, still fully tuned into conceptual reality either. We're, we're bouncing back and forth, or there's some crosstalk between the two. And that can be a space that's a little bit uncomfortable. It can be kind of agitating, uh, or very agitating at times there. It can feel unsatisfying when we're in that place. But just as with the radio, you know, the more experience that we get with the, the tuner, the more we get a feel for that, the, the easier it becomes to tune in the station that we want. So at times we, um, you know, we might want to tr- tune more into the conceptual level. At other times we might want to turn, tune more into the absolute level. And it's important to remember that there, there isn't any inherent conflict between these two ways of seeing things, as we've been saying. So coming back again to Nagarjuna's verse about the two truths, as human beings, our lives include both of these levels of reality. It's not that one is more valid than the other. They're both valid within their own spheres. So it's not any part of the Buddha's teaching that we need to reject conceptual reality, that we somehow stop functioning within conceptual reality. It's simply about seeing it in its proper light so that we can understand its nature. The Buddha himself, after his enlightenment, he didn't just continue sitting under the Bodhi tree, enjoying the experience of absolute reality until he uh, died from starvation and dehydration. <laughs> you know, he didn't do that. He, he, he hung around the Bodhi tree for a while, you know, for as long as his body would support, enjoying the, the peace of resting in absolute reality, the wisdom of that. Uh, and then he got up, and he had something to eat, and he had something to drink, and he spent the next uh, many decades of his life very actively engaging with conceptual reality, you know, giving very fully thought out and uh, elucidated and, dis- and uh, you know, very complete descriptions and a whole philosophy of what he had realized, you know, trying to help others. So he didn't abandon conceptual reality at all. The difference was that he was no longer fooled by concepts. He was no longer deluded. He was no longer ignorant about the nature of conceptual reality. In in those teachings and stories about the Buddha's life, there's this character Mara, who you may have heard of, who's kind of the the embodiment of the the delusion of conceptual reality. And uh, after the Buddha's enlightenment, Mara still came around. I find this a really interesting aspect of these stories about the Buddha's life. So Mar didn't just disappear when the Buddha became enlightened. He'd still come around and say, hey, how's it going? You know, hi, 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 Sid, how's it going? (laughs) How about a little bit of, you know, daydreaming? Just a few minutes for old time's sake. (laughs) Mar was very small after the Buddha's enlightenment. Before the Buddha's enlightenment, he was big and he had lots of weapons and things. But after his enlightenment, he's kind of small and he'd just kind of come around every once in a while to shoot the breeze. And the Buddha didn't condemn him. He didn't say, get out of here, Mara. I don't want to see you. He said, oh, Mara, I see you. I see what you're up to. (laughs) You can't fool me. So that was what changed. This difference between seeing conceptual reality and seeing uh, absolute reality, it's a little bit like the difference between looking at something with the naked eye versus seeing it through a microscope, if you remember that experience. I remember very clearly... Um, my seventh grade biology class, <laughs> the first time that we got to dissect things and make slides and look at them un- under the microscope and just really being blown away by like, oh my gosh, there's a whole different world in there <laughs> than how I usually see things. So it's, it's not that, you know, it's not that the, you know, the frog <laughs> c- 
kind of in our ordinary way of seeing it, and the frog is a little sliver on the microscope. You know, or, or it's not that one of those is more true than the other. They're both true within their own spheres. It's different ways of seeing. One doesn't negate the other. It's not that one of those is the right way of seeing and one of those is the wrong way of seeing. They're just two different levels of relating to the same thing. So seeing relative and absolute reality is kind of like that. There's really no inherent conflict between them. So it's not that as we learn to experience absolute reality, we start walking around saying things like, this psychophysical stream of experience is going to have lunch. You know, we don't, we don't do that. We still say, I'm going to have lunch. <laughs> but there's the understanding that that's shorthand, that there's a deeper reality than that. There's a deeper understanding and a deeper truth. Or to put it in more compelling terms, when we say, I'm in love, or we, or we say, I have cancer, there's an understanding that, yes, there is a level on which that is true. There's a level where there's a truth to that. But there's also a deeper level. There's a deeper truth. I've talked for quite a while now about uh, relative and absolute truth and what they are and how we shift between them, but there's a very fundamental question about this topic, which is simply, uh, why bother? <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, but why are we here doing this? We all know and love conceptual reality. It's familiar, it's easy, it's where we live our lives, it's where we're, bo- where we're born, where we grow up, where we grow old. It's where we have relationships and careers and spiritual paths and and all of that sort of stuff. And many people live out their entire lives on the conceptual reality, really grounded in conceptual reality without getting much of an inkling that there's really anything else going on, that there's another alternative. And yet we wouldn't be here if we didn't realize on some level, even if it's not conscious, that conceptual reality has some serious flaws got some serious drawbacks. The flaws that we call dukkha, which is usually uh, translated as suffering, but really encompasses so much more than that. And we'll talk more about this as the retreat goes on. But we can think of dukkha as all of the ways that relative reality lets us down, all the ways that it doesn't deliver what we want. So relative reality makes a lot of promises you know, the content of our thoughts make us a lot of promises. They spin lots of fantasies. They have lots of hopes for us. Uh, especially in, in our modern Western culture, where the, the idea is really propagated in society that we ought to be able to have it all. You know, we ought to be able to have perfect happiness and perfect health and unending youth, and we ought to be able to afford all of that uh, if we can just play our cards right, <laughs> if we can just get it all right. But how much of that does reality really deliver? You know, not much. The truth is that conceptual reality is actually exhausting. And we start to really see this on retreat. The endless stories, the endless dramas, the endless memories, the endless fantasies. You know, how little control we have over, the, over these. Has anybody not gotten this yet? <laughs> you know, it's exhausting being us. It's a lot of work to be me. It's not long before we're just sick of it. It's, it's oppressive. It's dukkha. So when we're paying attention to what's really going on in conceptual ra- reality, it's not long before you just want to say, you know, enough, enough already. Get me out. I want a break. 
And many of you have been coming into interviews saying this in one way or another, whether you realize it or not, how uncomfortable it is, noticing how uncomfortable it is to be stuck on that raft, riding the rapids, to be stuck on that train with no prospect of getting off. And we want so much to find some relief, to find some remedy, you know, some secret trick, some, some secret way of being mindful that will stop that, <laughs> that will give us some relief. Um, but what we really want is not to stop the thinking, although we may kind of focus on that, we may make that the problem. What we really want is an escape from conceptual reality, from that hard work of being me. So we're here because we've realized on some level that there has to be another way. And because we have faith on some level that there is another way and that this is the way, or at least it's worth giving it a shot. Precisely through tuning into absolute reality, through this practice of awareness, through the practice of mindfulness. So out of this faith, out of the intuition that there is another way to find happiness, we we end up here. We decide to try something else. And if we just do our best, we will start to connect with our actual experience, with absolute reality in more and more moments. And compared with being caught up in the dramas of conceptual reality, this feels great. It's such a relief to get a break. Because connecting with absolute reality gives us a chance to rest and relax a little bit. And many of you also are reporting this for, for shorter, for longer periods those times when we can just relax into the present moment, you know, be in the flow, be in the zone, and just feel a breath, just feel a step, just hear the sound of a bird, just notice a thought coming and going, and just be in the simplicity of absolute reality, things as they are. Mostly there's nothing special going on in these moments. It's kind of funny when we arrive in this place. It's just the same stuff. It's just more breathing. It's just more walking. It's just more hearing. It's just more thinking. But when we're in this place where we've tuned the dial to absolute reality, then there's a sense of of the real reality of our lives, the real experience of our lives, and the the richness and the vitality of that, even within unpleasant experiences at times. We may feel that. The more that we cultivate the ability to rest in absolute reality, the more these moments can become a place of rest and rejuvenation. And the more we can resort to them as a well-earned break from that hard work of being me. Which is an invaluable benefit of this practice, and it's a great asset in life to be able to step out of it all and to get some relief. But that is not why the Buddha went to the trouble to teach this practice. So coming back to Nagarjuna's verse again, the Dharma taught by the Buddhas relies on two truths, ambiguous truths of the world and truths of sublime meaning. Those who do not understand the difference between these truths cannot understand the profound reality of the Buddha's teaching. So the reason that the the Buddha offered us this teaching and the reason that we practice tuning into absolute reality is so that we can realize truths of sublime meaning and understand the profound reality of the Buddha's teaching. And that brings a depth of peace that goes beyond just momentary relief. It brings lasting relief, the relief of deeply accepting the truth of things as they are and living in harmony with with that, which is what we're chanting together every evening, that beautiful verse. 
This can sound pretty lofty, but it's actually a very natural and lawful process. It's actually completely organic. It all unfolds spontaneously and automatically, and we don't have to make it happen. In fact, we can't make it happen. But it unfolds naturally just from connecting over and over again with our actual experience in the present moment. And if we just do our best, the whole of the Dharma will reveal itself in time. So let's sit for a moment. Know all things to be like this, a mirage, a shape in the clouds, a dream, an apparition, without essence, but with qualities that can be seen. Know all things to be like this, as the moon in a bright sky, reflected in some clear lake, though to that lake the moon has never moved. Know all things to be like this, as an echo that reverberates from music, sounds, or weeping, yet in that echo is no melody. Know all things to be like this, as a magician conjures illusions, nothing is as it appears. So there's a little time for walking and then we'll meet back here for the last set. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.